it's probably one of the most difficult things in my development as a leader to say that if I continue with that mindset of service alone, then I will be selling myself short and not being a good role model and not being an effective leader. I have had to work at shifting myself in a position where I'm comfortable with having the spotlight on me. Welcome to the Leaders with Babies podcast. My name is Verena Hefti. I'm the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus. With this podcast and our award-winning Leaders Plus Fellowship program, I want to give you access to inspiration and practical support so you can continue to progress your career whilst enjoying your young children. You can take the first step to join a network of like-minded fellows from all sectors by going to leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship. Applications to our fellowship program have opened and they will close on 15th of October. If you have any questions about it, get in touch with me or one of my colleagues. By being a fellow, you will get access to a fantastic peer network of other leaders with babies and leaders with young children. You will get a senior leader mentor, access to thought leadership about what works for parents and careers and very importantly, space to think in a structured environment about you and your career. So today's conversation is probably one of the most uplifting in the last few months. It's with Hayatun Silem, CVE. She's the CEO of the Royal Academy for Engineering. She tells us what led to her being seen as a key person of influence. As you can imagine, you know, she's on all those lists. She's received awards from the Queen. People come to her to get her advice and guidance. And I was really interested to understand how that happened. So she tells us quite frankly what she did to get there. She also is equally frank about microaggressions that she has been at the receiving end of and what she practically does to deal with them on a day-to-day basis. And she also shares quite openly about what went through her head when she applied for a CEO job whilst still having kids at primary school. I really hope you enjoy Hayatun's honest reflections and her practical advice. Enjoy. A very warm welcome, Hayatun, to the podcast. It is wonderful to have you here, albeit virtually. And why don't we start with you telling us who you are, what you do at work and who is in your family? Thank you so much for having me, Felena. It's really, really nice to be here. So my name is Hayatun Sillam and I'm the Chief Executive of the Royal Academy of Engineering. I am a mother of two children. They are nine and 11. I have an 11-year-old son and a nine-year-old daughter. And I live at home with my husband and two children. I live two doors away from my parents as well, which is not a coincidence. So my family is very important to me. The extended family model works really well for us. So work is important to me and family is important to me. So I think it's a it's a good basis for coming on to your podcast. Mm, yeah, yeah, exactly. Hence why we speak. I'm really interested in your your story. Well, actually, let me ask you this way. When you chose engineering as your field at the very beginning, which I'm imagining is quite a male-dominated environment, did you think about it being a male-dominated environment and the potential impact on family life, or was that not on your horizon at all? 
Yes. Well, the honest truth is that I started out as a biochemist, not an engineer. So I did my undergraduate degree and my PhD in biochemistry. And actually, at that level, biochemistry is not male-dominated. At the upper levels, certainly when I was doing it, it still was to some degree. But there were more women than men in my uh, student cohort. But I was already at that point acutely aware of being different So actually, my sense of being different to those around me started very, very young. So I come from a very mixed ethnic background. My father is Cape Malay, he's from South Africa, but mixed ethnicity. My mother's half Indian, half English. And I grew up in a very, very multicultural environment where probably some of my earliest memories are of thinking about the right language to use or the right way to dress or the right way to behave in particular social groups. So that sense of being different to those around me has been a very profound part of my experience. And it continued through school. Sometimes it was to do with cultural differences. Sometimes it's to do with socioeconomic group. I came from a family with loads of allergies. You ate strange food. You know, There are many, many dimensions to it. So yeah, that sense of, of being from a, like an underrepresented group, as I would now term it, was very, very deeply ingrained in me. It didn't ever cause me to think about whether my move into engineering was ultimately a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. I think because my entire experience is that whichever group I'm in, I'm not in the majority. And so it didn't put me off in any way. And if anything, I think it's Over time, as I became more aware of actually quite how severe a diversity deficit engineering has, so a source of great frustration and disappointment, embarrassment even to me that we still have a profession that's 12% female, 9% black and minority ethnic engineer, and it's 2020. So that's the stats for the UK. So as I became more and more aware of our diversity deficit, I guess it made me feel that I had something that I could draw on and I could bring to the table that would help me make more difference in engineering than somewhere else. It's quite a deep theme for me, so I'm happy to talk more about it if it's of interest. Mm -hmm. I think it's really interesting. So actually, your early experience of being diverse wherever you went, whether within your own family, because there were so many people from different backgrounds or more widely, actually that strengthened you when you then went into that more traditional, and as you say, quite white, quite male environment of of engineering. Interesting. And did you ever experience any concrete, I mean, I've been, I started to get interested in microaggressions recently, and I'm just interested in your experience. Did you experience any being made to feel awkward or any microaggressions because you were a woman or because you were from an ethnic minority background or because you were a parent? Oh, yes. <laughs> I mean, I never I never thought about them as microaggressions. The way I looked at them were that people make assumptions. So if you come from multiple underrepresented groups, you have a great insight into the extent to which we all make assumptions every day of our lives. And mostly we don't notice it. And every now and again, something catches us out. So for many, many years, I have chosen not to wear a kind of plain black suit or a black suit with a white blouse or something like that, because... I would routinely get mistaken for somebody who was part of the hospitality team. People's assumptions about me were very much that I was there for some purpose other than the actual job I was there to do. So I'll give you a specific example. Well, I've had many people ask me where Dr. Sillam is when I turn up. My name is very gender neutral. The title doctor means that people don't realise that they have made an assumption about whether I'm a man or woman until I'm standing in front of them. And all of a sudden it turns out I'm Dr. Sillam, not who they were expecting. 
I've had people ask me whether I'm Dr. Sillam's PA. I had an example that was actually very, it's very interesting. It's a kind of, it's a, it's a reminder that we should never be complacent about the way assumptions and judgments work. I was going to, into meeting room, I was going to chair the meeting whilst we were waiting for the, someone to arrive. And I went to get myself a cup of tea and somebody said to me, Oh, good. There's someone here to pour the coffee. So. I thought, all right, well, I'm not going to make a scene at this point. Here we go again. And I said, well, I'm having tea. The coffee's just there. Then I realized when he went to get the coffee that he had a disability that meant that he needed assistance pouring the coffee. So he had made one assumption about me and I'd been so focused on that that I had not realized I'd made an assumption about him. And I just think it's a really (laughs) important point when it comes to how to be inclusive, that you should never assume that you're, you're on the side of the good guys. You know, we're all, our brains are amazing. They're really good at making connections between disparate things. That's, that's one of the wonderful features of the human brain. But sometimes those connections that are made are incorrect sometimes they're actually damaging to people and so trying to just be aware and to notice when we have made assumptions and judgments that have turned out to be wrong is I think a really good basis for becoming more inclusive so those are just a couple of examples of the sorts of microaggressions that I've experienced and been guilty of <laughs> yeah yeah and I think that's such an important point in that we all we really all can be guilty of that but did it impact your confidence at all or, or how do you deal with that in the moment and I presume it's usually unexpected unless you literally do stand with a white blouse behind a tea in a tea corner how do you deal with it well I guess I'm somebody that likes to focus on the positive I sometimes describe describe myself as a relentless optimist and I probably consciously try to not spend a lot of time expending negative energy <laughs> Of course, we're all human. So there are times it gets you down. There are times, it happens to me, not so much now, but when I was younger, it used to happen in shops as well. I would be shopping and people would sort of see a relatively professionally dressed young Asian looking woman and would say, oh, do you have this in a size 12? I feel like I've got my hand back. Uh, What makes you think I'm a shop assistant? I have in fact worked in shops many times in in my holidays and things as a student, but it's just that, you know, the frequency of it starts to get you down. But then in the context of my work, I guess what I have felt is I'm doing something very practical to contribute towards challenging those assumptions, those those stereotypes, because when people have had that encounter with me and they've felt, you know, that awkwardness when they suddenly realize they've made an incorrect assumption, that will, I'm sure, have some impact on what they think someone in a leadership role in my world of engineering looks like. I'm sure it will make them a little bit more careful about jumping to a conclusion next time round. So that makes me feel good that I am contributing to challenging those perceptions. I think I used to be quite shy about, I didn't like making fuss. I didn't want to make people feel uncomfortable. It comes back to also my my background as somebody who was really very, I wanted to make people around me feel comfortable with me, not focus on the difference. And as a result, I probably ended up sort of knocking the corners off myself a bit. And I now actually say, well, no, I've got, I've got a unique opportunity to help be part of driving positive change. So I talk a lot more. I mean, I never would have talked like this a few years back, never in a million years. I don't think I'd even have had the self-awareness to reflect on how that experience had shaped me or even to be able to answer your question about microaggressions. But I now think, well, gosh, you know, I've got a platform, I've got a voice and I've got life experience that can help me contribute to our collective understanding and, and to, to challenge some of those 
those habits and those ways of behaving that might be harmful to other people that we just don't notice. So in that sense, it's been fine. I mean, there were times in my career where if you'd asked me that, I probably wouldn't be able to say that. I used to sometimes talk about the invisibility cloak. Uh, So the experience of, you know, sitting in a senior level meeting and just not being able to get your voice heard. It got so bad, I developed an actual technique that I designated the placeholder technique to try to get my slot in the conversation. So, you know, it was that bad that I used to consciously use this technique, which was to intentionally interrupt someone when they were speaking and then immediately withdraw and apologize and say, oh, I'm so sorry. And then people knew that you wanted to come in next. And sometimes you had to repeat it and repeat it. But eventually it worked because we would look to this, Who's this person that keeps interrupting and you'd have your chance to speak. So it has been a a genuine part of my experience. But you know what I've found time and time again is people don't do it with malice. And once people become aware that that's your experience or that that's the effect they're having on you, they are genuinely sorry and want to do better. I have found very, very few, if any, experiences of people who don't care about the impact that they're having. So I'm an optimist. I believe in problem solving and doing constructive things. And I think that helps. And I have so many fantastic people around me who are all inspiring me and contributing to this wave of positive change that that makes it a lot easier. I'm not alone doing this in any way. So it sounds like you're not actually calling a meeting with the person who's done the microaggression and have a big discussion about it. But what you are doing is you're having a really, you have a small interaction or make a small comment that makes it very clear that they have done something that isn't quite in line, like when they keep talking and talking, never let you put your word in. But it sounds also like that your message is to not let anything slide because you need to challenge. Yes, I think whatever the assumptions are. Am I understanding that right? Yes, I I think it depends on the context. And also, I have changed a lot. So I think if you're in a leadership role, you have responsibility. So that's probably the thing that caused me to stop saying, oh, they didn't mean it. Oh, well, I'm not going to call them out on it because, you know, that would be awkward for them. When I realized that that sort of behavior was actually making it harder for people who I was responsible for, people who are more junior than me, to feel comfortable, to feel accepted, to feel welcome. That's the point at which I said, no, I need to be able to speak up and speak out. And so now if I hear or see a microaggression, I will always try to do something about it. Now, sometimes it can be it's appropriate to tackle it in a public context directly, immediately. But other times I will do that privately. It's a promise to myself that I will always try to make sure that I do address it because I think otherwise you're not using your privilege as somebody in a leadership position responsibly. And my personal preference is always to, to be polite and courteous and professional in how you deal with it. But I don't judge somebody who feels emotional and feels that they want to express it in a different way because we're all affected differently by these things. And I think you have to behave in a way that's authentic to you. But I do think that for leaders, you have an absolute responsibility to think about the experience of people in your team. Mm. It's very inspiring that you are holding yourself accountable to doing it every single time, even though I bet sometimes it would just be easier to not say anything or not, not raise your eyebrows. Well, I'm sure I miss occasions. So I'm quite sure that there will have been times I've missed it. But wherever I've noticed it or it's made me feel uncomfortable, yes, I have a promise to myself to do something about that. And what's your view on the difficult woman concept? You fear being seen as, or did you at any point in your career, fear being seen as the difficult woman, quotation marks? So I guess my my personal background, if you like, my 
sort of family culture and my ethnic background has everything, all these things shape you in different ways. And I was, I think, shaped to be very, very, very respectful of authority and to be somebody that is very comfortable in the idea of service. You know, you're there to serve. And I have found it extremely hard. It's probably one of the most difficult things in my development as a leader to say that if I continue with that mindset of service alone, then I will be selling myself short and not being a good role model and not being an effective leader. So I have had to work at shifting myself in a position where I'm comfortable with having the spotlight on me. I was naturally far more inclined to be somebody who sat silently beside the person who was the centre of attention, helping make them look better. (laughs) And I didn't really notice that this was what I was doing for many, many, many years. And then at some point, I suddenly could have woke up to the realisation that I was was quite confident that all my bosses would have written me lovely references. I really had no visibility beyond that. And I had no identity beyond that. And I felt this is not, it's not right. It's not, it's, it's dangerous from a career perspective. And as a, and it's magnified by the fact I come from underrepresented groups and struggle with the visibility issue anyway. So actually quite consciously, I have worked to become more visible and more somebody who does speak up and somebody who's confident in using my voice, but that has taken me time. And even now I don't, I don't love public speaking and I don't, love doing the sort of let me share my personal journey (laughs) but I recognize that there is value in doing that and actually if you if you want to be an effective leader you need to be willing to show your vulnerabilities and to be open and to be challenging so I've discovered I quite enjoy being a difficult woman at times (laughs) I didn't know that that would (laughs) that would give me the, the satisfaction it does I don't enjoy being difficult for sake of being difficult, but being difficult as a provocation to change and as somebody who's willing to challenge the status quo constructively, actually, yes, I enjoy that role now and I have no fear about it. And as I sort of alluded to, I think it's part of it's part of being an effective leader who's kind of leveraging the personal life experience that I have. Mm. And has it got easier over time? Yes, definitely. Like everything, you build your muscles by practice, by using them. Part of it's just, you know, you've got to sort of find your voice. You've got to learn how to be true to yourself, but perhaps emphasizing different qualities within you that you haven't brought to the fore previously. I found it an odd experience to to merge my personal, more private life with my professional life because I found that when I became the CEO in particular, people wanted to know about my backstory and my family. And as somebody who'd always actually found it helpful to compartmentalize my life, it's one of the things that very much helped me to be an engaged mother and an engaged professional. I found that not comfortable when I started, but like everything, you, you start to find the words or the narrative that you feel is works for you and is engaging for people outside, you start to realise that you can have different modes of operating. I I very much, I mean, in fact, I've used the term before, I believe in work in progress leadership. I'm a work in progress leader and I'm proud to be so because I don't think that, you, you know, we need to aspire to this kind of superhero bulletproof, I can do everything. I can't do everything. There are lots of things that are still really hard. Some things I can say, look, I'm much better now than I was two years ago. Some things I don't yet know I need to improve on. But that's, a, for me, a much more relatable style of leadership, empathetic, inclusive, 
not feeling the need to be an alpha alpha leader, but rather somebody who is seen as committed and doing their best on their path of self-improvement, happy to learn, not afraid of having humility. Those are all things that I hope people would recognise me as a leader. Brilliant. I want to pick up on the point around visibility that you've mentioned. So you are clearly someone who people come to. You're seen as an expert. You're, you've got orders from, what, was it again, OBE or? You is on this list. So, yes. So, so you know, you're, you've, you're this very, very acclaimed woman that people come to <laughs> and want advice, insights and so on. And I'm just interested in how did you become such a go-to person? and I'm sure you probably say, I may be wrong, but you know, many people I ask that question say, well, it was just luck and so on. But I'm still interested. What is it that caused it? Because there's so many people out there, and especially parents who have all these other responsibilities who somehow don't get onto those lists, not necessarily the new years on this, but you know, don't become those key go-to experts. And I'm interested, how did you become the person that others want advice and insights from? Irina, that's a great question and I'm glad you've asked. I think a lot of people are shy of asking questions like that. But it's really important to talk about this stuff. So I talked about this issue I felt with invisibility. I felt I wore this invisibility cloak. And I also hinted at the fact that this became increasingly apparent to me. And I thought, it's not a good thing. I have to take some action. And if if you flip it forward to the point at which I was appointed the chief executive of the Royal Academy of Engineering, that's the point at which the total reverse happened. And I suddenly felt like I was wearing a hyper visibility cloak. So that was, I mean, it is almost comical. So I don't want to sound ungrateful. I am really not ungrateful. I feel so honoured, so proud and you use the word luck. I feel so fortunate is the way I would put it to have been given so many opportunities, you know, from the fashion shoot in Vogue last year and the issue that Meghan Markle edited was a particular out-of-body experience. <laughs> you know, you have to sort of struggle, is that me? Similarly, getting the CB and the New Year's Honours list, you know, I'm used to writing citations for other people. It's It feels so extraordinary and honestly bizarre that that's suddenly who I am seen as, particularly because the majority of my professional life has not been, has been almost the opposite of that. So what was the difference before and after? And, and the thing I say to people is that I'm basically the same person before all that happened as I am after it. So it's a reminder of that crucial pivot point where you suddenly get visibility. You suddenly, somebody externally places their confidence in you publicly. And that person or that organization starts to then give other people the confidence to put their trust in you and to think that you are worthy of further recognition. So it's a sort of, it's almost like a cascade effect. Once a trusted party has done that, it becomes much easier for other people to get on board. What can you do in practice to start that chain reaction? So in my case, I knew that the job of the CEO of the Royal Academy of Engineering would come up. I had been there working there for many years. I worked my way up as an internal candidate for that role. And I knew that it would be a job that lots of other people would go for who were better qualified for me. I didn't I had very narrow experience within one organization mostly. I wasn't an engineer by background. Uh, I would be younger, all sorts of factors that were at play. So I just I took a very practical approach. I thought Okay, so where are the areas where I will be in relative terms weaker than other candidates? 
and what can I do about it? And I did something that was very uncomfortable for me. I started asking people for help. It's a lovely thing when people invite you to do things or they offer their help to you. But what I really learned from that experience is people love to be asked and you have to have the courage to ask people. And I, I asked people for various things. I asked people for feedback. I asked them to assess what they felt my strengths and weaknesses were as a candidate. I asked people to help me get a foot in the door for different things that I was interested in doing. So, for example, I thought it would be incredibly helpful if I looked like a more credible person in the engineering community. So there's um, a fellowship of uh, one of the engineering institutions that I knew you could apply for even if you hadn't got a first degree in engineering. So I asked somebody senior connected with that organization, would you be willing to put me forward? And their response was almost shock and embarrassment. They hadn't thought of it. And they were so delighted to help. I asked other people, do you think you might be able to help me find some non-exec roles? Because I knew I needed to build my portfolio to have experience that was outside the narrow organization I was in. And again... Sorry, my trust is, you might want to say non-exec roles are means being a director, as in sitting on a board of another organization. So that's what you ended up doing through through help. Well, was, well, so it's just you start to ask around because when you start, you don't know how to do these things. But the point is, if you ask, if you start saying, oh, I need to broaden my experience, if you've got any ideas, then you'll find that some people can't help you and other people can, or they'll make an introduction to someone else you might be able to. And I just literally systematically went through all the areas which I felt might help. And I was a bit, I was anxious about this partly because I, I felt People might say no, or they might think I wasn't suitable, this sort of fear of rejection. But I was also anxious because I had two young children at the time, and I was worried about how I could sustain my work commitments and my family commitments. It's very important to me that I don't feel that I do my work at the cost to my family. What I had to to convince myself was that actually by, say, taking 5% out of the time I was giving to my day job and spending it on these wider activities... I would not lose out, the the employer would not lose out. And that's exactly what I found. I found that by enriching that wider experience, it made me better at my job. It brought in networks that were really valuable. It gave me so much more confidence. I practiced being me in different contexts. And so I think what I took away from that is you have to be tactical about your career. And I find this really hard. I find it, you know, these days there, there aren't career templates and tram lines in the way they used to be. So just figuring out What's going to be a, a place where I'll thrive? Where will I find a working environment which will allow me to flourish? It's quite hard. And you need to you need to talk to people a lot to even identify those opportunities. And then you need to be tactical and pragmatic about thinking, how do I give myself the best chance of being in line for those opportunities? Now I'm, you know, I'm very upfront about, you know, I say to my team, I do it myself. I always build in some, if you like, extracurricular activities into my working life. I make time to mentor people, to have you know career chats with them. I make sure I have a regular stream of people that I'm talking to, getting feedback from. You don't have to take the feedback. You don't have to agree with what everyone thinks of you, but it helps you learn how you're perceived to improve. It's very empowering and it helps you progress faster in my view. Mm. Thank you for being so frank and open. That's really helpful. You mentioned how you were worried about this impacting your ability to be a parent i'm interested in reality how did that step up to the ceo role impact your family life and and what have you learned along the way about managing a young family alongside quite a big job yeah um, it's i mean it obviously was 
something I did ask myself and talk to my family about before I went for the job. I'm lucky in that I've always had a sort of we we joke in the family that nobody thinks I'd be a better mother if I stayed at home more. So it's a kind of it may not be sound like a great compliment to me, but I I actually I think it's good. You just have to recognise who you are, and for me, I am better when I'm fulfilled, intellectually engaged. I don't feel it's a zero-sum game in that respect. But I do think that having discipline and structure, kind of rules-based living almost, has been really helpful. So from the point I took up the CEO position, and actually for several years previously, I had a rule that I work from home on Friday. And on Friday afternoon, I would always be there to pick up my kids from school. And it sounds like something really simple, but the fact that I really hardly ever break that rule is important. I also decided quite early on in being a working mother that I wanted to really cut back on travel. So I do a lot of late nights. So before this period of lockdown, I would typically have probably two very late nights and then leave the office not before seven o'clock on the other two nights. So, you know, I do long hours. That's fine because my family are all, we all expect that that's how it'll be Monday to Thursday. I'm but they all expect that I'm there in the morning for breakfast and I can help them get ready for school. And then they know on Friday I'm available and during the weekend I will prioritise them. So it's a by having that rhythm, it really, really works. What is harder is when something breaks a rhythm. And my husband works as well. We're very lucky that my mum is a great support in just helping the equation add up, making us able to be a bit flexible, for example, if someone is ill and so forth. But it's always... I don't think you ever feel you have it perfectly. Accepting imperfection is just necessary. And I'm not someone who spends a lot of time feeling guilty. I rather focus my effort on just trying to make sure I learn from whatever doesn't go the way that we hoped it would or the way you planned it would and to build that into how I tackle it next time around. And that's, for me, a realistic view of life. I don't think if I didn't work that I would not have these dilemmas and these feelings of inadequacy or these feelings of, oh, frustration, things aren't going according to plan. I think they would be there anyway. So I am feel immensely fortunate that I get to commit to a job where I get that fulfillment. The kids also feel, I think, proud and interested in what I do. Actually, strangely, the period of lockdown has made them really connected with what I do. My nine-year-old daughter has become my almost full-time Zoom assistant. <laughs> but it's it's actually lovely for them to see, well, what does she do all day? And to learn more about that. I want them to grow up thinking that this is normal. This is a world in which both parents work and that's a good thing and that's to be celebrated and not something that feels like a, you know, something that detract from your family experience. But I recognize I'm incredibly fortunate to have the support of, you know, a partner and extended family as well. That's something that not everyone realistically can have access to, but it helps tremendously in, as I said, making the equation add up for me. I can imagine. But that was a choice as well, moving very close to your family. I can imagine that choice must have made such a big, big impact. It did. And I, oh, sorry, Verena. I was just going to say, actually, my first year of doing this chief exec job, actually, we were doing a massive renovation on the house we now live in, two doors down from my parents. We were living with my parents. And uh, in the, I think three months after I took up the job, my father, unfortunately, had a he had an emergency operation for a severe cancer. And so the experience of living directly with my extended family at that time was actually really important for both supporting my parents and feeling like we could play our part in that. Of course, still committing to a, a big new job, but it was, it was a fairly demanding year. <laughs> I can imagine. It sounds very intense. Have you, did, did you ever have to make 
really tough or courageous decisions about not maybe about balancing family and career many people talk about balance I don't know if I like the word or not but I'm just interested whether there's something that links to balance which is about courage and making really courageous decisions what, what's your thought on that yeah I suppose you know the most courageous decision would have been going for the CEO role but I don't necessarily experience it as a as a dilemma in the sense that if you with your family look at a set of options and you all agree that one is a good option that's that's a great place to be and even if that option is stretching or will bring its challenges if it's a shared decision I don't feel that sense of the struggle for balance the, the dilemma I think managing health and well-being mental well-being is a challenge for anybody I mean it's stressful working but it's stressful just living it's stressful not having a job it's stressful being a full-time parent or carer so I sometimes think we overemphasize that side of it and in, in a previous life I sometimes had conversations with bosses or senior people and they sort of say oh you know shouldn't you get home to your family at night and I'd be like you know really <laughs> that's not that's not the dilemma I'm very clear where the boundaries are my family are clear we're fine with that. We're good. Thank you very much. If you want to talk to me about the experience of being invisible in meetings, that's more interesting to me. (laughs) (laughs) So I sometimes think there is an overemphasis on this idea that you have to make this great binary choice between family and work. I can't imagine life without one or the other. And I'm so privileged and fortunate that I'm able to combine both in a way that I feel comfortable with, my family feels comfortable with, my employer feels comfortable with. That doesn't come not everyone has that opportunity but I don't spend time worrying a great deal about the balance that is so interesting and do you have a view why other people who don't think like you do worry about balance is there an assumption there or what's the reason I know we're speculating here but I'm interested in your thoughts Gosh, that's a difficult one because I don't like, after everything I said about assumptions, I don't like just trying to interpret how everyone else is experiencing it. But I'm asked many, many, many times by people about work-life balance or about how I combine work and family. And often the expectation is I'm going to say it's a terrible struggle. I think that expectation is sometimes unhelpful. I genuinely think we have to be we have to invest more time and energy in, in working out how we can support people, particularly those who have challenging jobs. And challenging jobs aren't necessarily senior jobs. I think we are spend a lot of time, we need to spend more time rather, in helping people feel that they have a better focus on their self-care and ability to find internal harmony and well-being in their life. That is a real challenge. I'm not relaxed about that at all. But to attribute that to being a working mother, I think is it's an assumption in its own right that I don't, for me personally, feel is the right one to prioritise. Mm. I think without my family, my ability to do my job and my stress levels in my job would be much higher. It's made me feel like I have a bit of separation. I I care intensely about my work, but I also I don't feel it's it's overwhelming because I am rooted in this reality of my family that counterbalances the intensity of work. I find that I have enforced mind switching. So for me, one of the most important aspects of self-care is to not think continuously about work and to not have your your sort of mental space just nibbled away by constant worrying or constant thinking about emails and kind of feeling like you should be doing things. And so because I've made a promise to myself and my family that when I'm not working, 
the kids are my priority, it just it enforces me to get that contrast between work and non-work. So for me, family is is really good for for making me a better person in my professional context. And I would, yeah, so I would I would really push back that it has to be a dilemma or a zero-sum game. That's very powerful. And in fact, my mother says the same. So I'm very much inclined to agree with you. <laughs> um, it, yeah, so so basically you're saying the most important thing here is is not the question of balance, but it's a question of self-care and not to make assumptions about the impact on mother being a mother or being a father might have, but actually first of all look after yourself. Is that have I understood that right? Yeah, I mean, so so we have a you know our our happiness and well being is is a composed of a mosaic of factors, and it might be fulfilment in your job is so strong that that helps to counterbalance some of the other areas where you know you might have a tough commute, for example, or you might find it difficult to juggle that with childcare. And for one person and for one particular job and scenario, that's going to be really different from another. So having Living in a way that's sustainable for me, I'm I'm not somebody that wants to kind of be a. I don't want to burn out at the you know in my mid forties where I am now. I'd like to feel I've got many many years ahead of me where I can still do interesting things and still make a contribution. And so, I want to live in a way that's sustainable. I don't want to live in a way where I'll look back and feel I have a lot of regrets. You never know how you feel in the future, but at least you can attempt to factor that into how you're behaving now. And I know that if I if I don't take care of myself and I make myself ill, then that's damaging to my family. It's damaging to my job. And, you know, it's just, it's just a disaster all around. So I have to accept that self-care is a necessary part of sustainable living. So they're not feeling guilty when you just flop down in front of some bad TV at the end of a long day or not feeling guilty if you have a takeaway. Those are things that for me are, you know, important. I try to, I try to, think about where I'm sending my energy. And if I'm going to worry about something, I want it to be something that's where worrying might do you some good <laughs> and uh, or else where you really can't help it. And then you might need to get some support around you to deal with that particular problem. But I could literally at any point in my day, any day, find 10, 20, 30 things to get myself worked up about. And if I put my energy into just thinking, what if, oh my gosh, wasn't that annoying? I don't have any energy left to do the things that matter. So I make it sound all very... <laughs> very smooth and I've got this covered. I haven't. I'm a work in progress person. But I do think living consciously helps you to to figure out how to make that equation add up. And actually one thing I should mention that has been amazingly important for my overall sense of well-being and actually career progression too has been having great people in my network. So I'm very fortunate to have a good peer network. And there are some people that have been so influential in my development. So I actively do peer coaching with a very small set of people who have, I would say, they have empathy because they are on comparable career paths, maybe same sort of stage in their uh, personal life. And we we bring problems to the table. We talk about them. And that helps me tremendously because I think, you know, we all, you can't do big jobs or small jobs and not expect to have problems. So having constructive ways of dealing with them helps you to not be defeated and not be dragged down by the, the sense of overwhelm. And so I use peer coaching and peer support as a sanity check, as a health check, and as a practical way for helping kind of crunch through those tricky things. And those those peers have been amazing for sometimes calling me out when I am I'm not trying hard enough or when I'm just sitting there having a winterthon. They don't always just say, oh, you're great. Oh, yeah, you know, I'm so sorry. Sometimes they give me tough love, but that 
really, really helps. And I would strongly recommend that whatever career stage you're at, find those people who can be in your gang, people who will support you and support you with a sort of realistic mindset and help to challenge you when perhaps you're not being ambitious enough for yourself and to learn from, see how they're tackling things in their lives, their professional lives. That peer network, I think, has been an amazingly influential part of my development. I couldn't agree more. You've pretty much just summarised the reason why I set up leaders. You know, we, we run this patient <laughs> programme where we bring together leaders with babies and leaders with young children. And that's exactly it. And, and actually, the evidence also supports that especially yeah. women progress up the career ladder much better if they do have a trusted, diverse network of uh, people that they that they can draw on. Yeah, I'm really... Well, thank you for what you're contributing to that. I think that's really... Um, it could feel like when you've got young children, you haven't got time for it. But actually, you should always make time for this stuff. It's you know, This is where you have to sort of have the self-belief to say, if I spend an hour every two weeks just hanging out with people who are good for me, I'll be better at my job. Nobody loses. <laughs> Absolutely. This has been incredibly thought-provoking, but I know we're coming up to the end of our time. Do you? Is there anything else we haven't talked about that you really want to make sure listeners hear? Well, I suppose there's one thing I'd like to say, because, of course, I work in engineering and we've talked about the experience of being in underrepresented groups in engineering. And we have a big mission, which is to try to make sure that more people from more backgrounds start to see a future for, for themselves in engineering. And so we have a campaign called This Is Engineering, which aims to reposition engineering in the minds of young people, but also their influences. And parents are such an important group of influences of, of the decisions of young people. And I know that your listeners are people who are thoughtful and interested in how they can contribute positively to the world around them. And I would just love everyone to feel that that the challenge of diversifying engineering is something we should all care about because engineers shape the world we live in, whether or not we notice it. They design and they deliver the infrastructure, both the physical infrastructure, but also the digital infrastructure that we all rely on every single day. So much of what we use in our lives has been designed by an engineer, made by an engineer. And so it's super important that people who are shaping our world reflect the society that they serve. And unfortunately today, that's not the case. So I would just love to leave your listeners with the thought that they can be part of a positive change that we're trying to affect, which is that people feel engineering matters and engineering is for everybody. There's lots of evidence out there about all the reasons it's a great career, but it's also just a fantastic way to feel like you're making a positive difference to to help the cause of humanity. So please think about that when you're talking to your children, talking to your peers, talking to their teachers about careers and futures. And also, actually, we're interested in in supporting people who perhaps didn't make that career choice, but who are now maybe in the middle of their career and thinking about what they want to do for the next chapter. Because the reality is we're not all going to have linear careers anymore. We're going to have different career chapters. And perhaps engineering could be one of those career chapters. We need people who bring different life experience, different professional experience into their role. So there are engineering career, engineering conversion courses rather that are emerging. And again, I think it could be a really great option for somebody who's feeling like they haven't got their niche professionally and wants to try something different. So I can't resist a plug for that, but I hope that's okay with you. Very happy to talk (laughs) and uh, I'm sold. So two practical things that you'd like someone to do this week Uh, let's say a parent with a preschool child what two specific things be that they can do to support your mission well have a look at our this is engineering campaign you literally just have to 
tap into a search engine, this is engineering. And if you, there's loads of video content there. If you know somebody who might be interested in that, send it on. It's a really simple act or just that's on social media, just just like it or put, put it on your feed. And then think about how you are going to talk to other people with children and your own children and the people who educate your children about what careers are appropriate for which people. It's not all about gender either. It's about a whole set of factors. But to just do that little internal challenge to your own assumptions you might have made about who's a future engineer. And if you did those two things, I would be over the moon and you'd have my undying gratitude. Wonderful. So we will definitely share that via our channels as well. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Yeah, really lovely to talk to you, Hayatun. Thank you so much for your time and the honesty that you've brought to this conversation. Thanks so much, Verena. It's been lovely to speak to you and good luck with everything. Um, You do fantastic work. Thank you. Thank you for listening today. If you want to connect with Hayatun, you can find more about her work at the Royal Academy of Engineering by following at R-A-E-N-G News on Twitter and of course do check out the hashtag that she mentioned. If you are obviously looking to connect with this type of group and of peers that she describes then do have a look at the Leaders Plus Fellowship. The reason why I called it fellowship is exactly because when I set it up I wanted it to be at the core this community of really supportive people who are ambitious and who share some of the similar aspirations for their lives but are all very different so yes if you do want to get involved then have a look at leadersplus.org.uk forward slash fellowship applications will close on the 15th of october but it's probably not a bad idea to get your application in earlier yeah and so i have had uh, an ambition to make a difference to a thousand listeners by the end of september we're already quite a good way there at the moment. Each podcast gets listened to probably about 800 or so times per podcast episode. So I really would like to reach a thousand. Um, so if you can help, then it would be wonderful. So do share it on social media and definitely subscribe to the podcast. That really helps with this technical search engine stuff. And yeah, also leave a review because that helps. So Thank you in advance for your help and really appreciate you listening. Uh, Until next week. Bye.